I told you recently about my work with Shared Hope International and their mission to end sex trafficking. Um, I'm sorry to bring it up again, but it's what's in front of me right now. I hope you'll uh, forgive me for it. This past Tuesday morning, we had a breakfast in Vancouver. About 150 or so people were, were there that were gathered uh, to give them uh, appreciation, thanks for their contributions and their service to share hope over the past year. And also it was a time to appeal for uh, more donors and support. I found myself at the front table. I don't know how I got there, uh, but I only knew two other people at the front table, and I had never met this uh, very fine-looking, normal, middle-aged couple next to me, uh, nor had I ever met uh, the young lady in her 20s who was next to them. It was very early. I'd be in Vancouver at 7 a.m., so the conversation at first was a little limited. And uh, a gentleman was standing in the corner, Nehemiah Brown was his name, and he was singing Christmas carols. He was singing O Holy Night at 7 a.m. I still don't know how that, yeah, see, Matt, you know. I mean, that just doesn't happen. Somehow he did it. He pulled it off. It was beautiful. And so we were just listening to a lot of these carols. But you know how these things go after a while. Um, you can't just sit there quietly not speaking. So I broke the uh, morning ice. And I asked them about their connection to share hope. I'm not sure what I expected them to say, but it's not what they said. It wasn't what they said. The single young woman who was sitting there on the other side of the couple said, when I was 18 years old, I was targeted for trafficking. And at the very last minute, Linda Smith saved my life. Linda's the founder and director of Shepherd. And Brianna went on to tell me how she was having a, an 18th birthday party in a very public location. And in the middle of the party and all the revelry, uh, she met a group of new friends, quote unquote. She said they were incredibly fun-loving and just joined in the party and very kind and, and uh, they were saying all the right things, and so they made plans at the end of the night to catch up with each other again, and they did. And it wasn't very long before Brianna was motivated by these new, older friends to kind of launch out on her own, so she moved out of the house. And she moved in an, into an apartment under the watchful eye of her new, what seemed like family to her. Grooming is what traffickers do to win over victims. And often they give them things like new phones and clothing and take them to nice dinners. And they tell them that they want the best for them, that they want to protect them from all the bad people who are out there. And that's what they did for Brianna. And it wasn't long before she was all in. She was completely convinced and committed to them as a new family. And the culmination of the grooming was their promise that they were going to take her on an amazing vacation to Arizona in the dead of winter. And who in the Pacific Northwest wouldn't want a great trip to Arizona in the winter? 
So she was excited about that. But then through a variety of providential circumstances, Brianna's real friends and family were stricken with fear and panic that something was desperately wrong and they just felt like they were up against the clock. They weren't really sure why all the issues at play, but they knew something was wrong. And someone in that group of family and friends contacted a police officer and shared the concerns. And it just so happened that that particular police officer knew Linda Smith and what she did. And he called her personally and said, here's the situation. Late one night, Linda found Brianna, and she rushed over to her. Now, it's important to understand, Linda was there. She showed up physically. She placed herself in front of Brianna, not simply to speak words, but to represent a barrier to her, to stand in her way, between her and the imminent evil that even she didn't know she was facing. And so that night, Linda began to explain what was actually happening. And as Brianna protested, these are my friends, you don't understand, they love me, they're taking me on a great vacation, it's going to be wonderful. Linda gently and firmly explained that if she went to Arizona with them, that would be the beginning of a life of slavery that would be very difficult for her to escape. Linda didn't mince words. She is not one to mince words if you've ever met her. She stood her ground. And with each protest, Linda spoke against the lies, the dark lies that Brianna had come to believe. And in the end, truth in this situation did prevail. Brianna did not go to Arizona, and she left the apartment, and she returned home. And afterwards, she became so distraught and angry at what nearly happened to her, and that this was happening to thousands of others, that for the past decade or so, Brianna's been a voice for educating and fighting for freedom from the slavery of sex trafficking. Now, she's one of the most fortunate ones. Many of the 10, 11, and 12-year-olds grow up as modern-day slaves. Now, Linda and Brianna, and many others like them, whether they realize it or not, are living out the spirit of Advent. Last week, we heard the message of Jesus to us, Stay awake! Watch! And staying awake, you'll remember, right? You do remember this. Is closely linked with each person doing their own work within the kingdom of God in anticipation of Christ's arrival in our future. And so when anyone is willing to place themselves on the frontier between light and darkness, that is the spirit of Advent. When you and I denounce the lies of this world that masquerade as freedom, and we instead proclaim the freedom of repentance and faith and hope in Jesus Christ, that is Advent in action. 
when we overcome our own fear and paralysis and we're there, present, with the person who might even repel us a bit. Well, that is the Advent Spirit. How do I know? Because this is precisely what we find in the enigmatic figure of John the Baptist. Mark and the other three Gospel writers as well claim that the only way we can talk about the Gospel of Jesus Christ is to first talk about John the Baptist. Seems strange to be forced to do that, doesn't it? I mean, can't we just skip all of this strange stuff about John and get right to the good stuff about Jesus, cross, resurrection, and salvation, all of that? And for the most part, the church has done exactly that. We have skipped over. I don't think I've ever seen the Baptist on an Advent calendar. Have you? We've never pulled open one of those perforated doors to discover a chocolate in the shape of a man slovenly dressed in camel's hair, crunching on a dead locust. But wouldn't that be awesome? And I do not envy the parents who would need to explain this guy to their three or four year olds. I mean, maybe we can understand it when we think about it. Maybe we can understand why so many overlook this wild man. It's just positively unfitting the dignity of the Son of God. Last night, um, Marie and I watched a few minutes of Rick Steves' Europe on PBS. I'm a Rick Steves fan, sorry. And it was his episode on the Renaissance of Florence. Strikingly, the sculptures that dominate that time are of King David, or people like him. Beautifully sculptured, perfectly balanced in proportion, shiny, clean, victoriously standing on the severed head of his giant enemy. But the art featuring John the Baptist down through the centuries tends to highlight his head on a platter. Fewer pieces of that art exist featuring John as really few of us know what to do with him. And yet, he's the dominant figure of Advent. Advent is the time just before the arrival of Jesus Christ. And so, for the first arrival, the Baptist is the focal point, which is why the church lectionary has us read and study this guy every single year. And for the second advent of Christ, the one that is yet to come, the focal point is you, and me, and the rest of Christ's body, and even, I would suggest, those outside of his church who unwittingly do his bidding when they stand for true light and hope. Here are the last few verses of our Old Testament. This is what it says. The Lord of heaven's army says, The day of judgment is coming, burning like a furnace. 
On that day, the arrogant and the wicked will be burned up like straw. They will all be consumed, roots, branches, and all. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness, S-U-N, will rise with healing in his wings. Look, I am sending you the prophet Elijah before the great and dreadful day of the Lord arrives. His preaching will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. The intertestamental period, that period after Malachi and the prophets, the other prophets, and Matthew's gospel and Mark's gospel, that intertestamental period is roughly about 400 years. And the hope during that time was for Elijah to reappear, which would be a signal that the end of the world was near. So that's what everyone was hoping for. Mark and the other Gospel writers then take time to give us physical descriptions of John the Baptist. Have you ever wondered why they might do that? Why would they take such time? It wasn't just an effort at character development. His description is the same as Elijah's that we read about in 2 Kings, back in the Old Testament, which is signaling to us that John the Baptist is the new Elijah, here at the dawn of the destruction of the old world and the inauguration of a new kingdom, a new kingdom that will have no end. So now John is the final and definitive prophet <coughs> saying to the world that the age of sin and bondage and slavery is about to meet its demise. And I love what he says in Mark. You think I'm mighty? I mean, he's mighty. He, he knew he was mighty to an extent. You think my baptism is enough to rid this world of death and evil and your stubborn sin? Well, somebody's already here in the flesh who will baptize you with the very life of God. Head to toe inside and out, completely saturated with a life that cannot be overcome by anything, even something as powerful as death. So the figure of John the Baptist on this frontier between the Old Testament and the arrival of Jesus is the evidence that waiting for Jesus isn't a waste of our time. A new age has dawned. The power of the principalities of this world has lost its grip. John's witness teaches us that the wickedness of tyrants and despots and presidents and despotic presidents is doomed to die. And we learn this truth even in the face of John's own unspeakably heinous execution. And if we now stand as the voices crying in the wilderness to prepare for the next coming of Christ, we can only do that if we truly believe, like John, that we really are living in the new kingdom. 
that the kingdom of God actually has come to earth in some form. And if we do believe that, well, then we can face anything. Camel's hair is okay. Locusts taste pretty good. I don't care if the authorities are after me. It doesn't matter. The kingdom is here. The kingdom is coming in fullness. And we can believe it. And you know what that means? That means that when your fellow students shame you because they think you don't measure up, well, you can continue with joy. Because shame is crushed under the feet of a crucified Savior who's given you his very life. And this same Savior is returning to completely rid this world of all shame. And shame works. It also means that a brief late-night conversation with a woman who carries in her spirit the spirit of John the Baptist is more powerful than all the money and all the violence and all the threats of the traffickers. And she's standing there on that frontier between light and darkness, physically. It means that repentance and forgiveness truly are the means to freedom and joy, even if that requires us to suffer along the way. John the Baptist is the evidence that when we stand as light against darkness, hope against despair, love against apathy, we aren't wasting our time. Advent is waiting, that's true, but Advent is waiting for what's certain to come to pass. The kingdom of God is here and it's coming. It is coming in fullness, and so we you, me, we stand at the dawn of a new age, crying out in our own little wilderness that one is already here who is much more significant than anything we could say or do. And he will purge this world of all wars, of confusion, of regret, of our secret fears, and our hidden anxieties. And he will free us, head to toe, inside and out. What is God asking us to do? Perhaps we won't be asked to confront heads of state, like John the Baptist did, or resist violent sex trafficking like Linda Smith does. But Advent in action takes many forms in many different places. What about you? What about me? I think of my friend Gary. He's a minister, pastor in Scotland. He continues to preach and serve and pray with and for anyone in his parish who's open to it, Christian or not. He's done this for many years now. One night around a fire, he described to me and to others what was happening in his own congregation. I was astonished. You think you've been through tough church 
situations, you should meet Gary. I was speechless how he was being treated and stabbed in the back and dragged through torture by his own elders and his own church members. Gary had a message. He preached the gospel. He loved his people. He told them that something was fundamentally wrong with us and we need the healing of Jesus and not respond well, so they filed complaints, they spread rumors, and they schemed against him. And Gary continues to preach. We aren't surprised this is happening to him. We're all well acquainted with John the Baptist. Maybe that's not you. Maybe it's something else. I think of Social workers who are devoted to a life of low pay and extreme working conditions so that someone will care for the ones who can't care for themselves. What if they weren't here? What would our world be like? And then there's the everyday advent and action when parents are willing to fight the battle of saying no to an angry, demanding child so that that child will come to know what it means to restrain darkness and live in the light. And that's a battle worth fighting. I think about my friend who made a verbal commitment to his work colleagues who is, and is now feeling the temptation to renege on that commitment because it's to his very great advantage to do so. It's likely no one would ever find out. But he knows. And he knows God knows. And so we ask for accountability that he'll be able to resist the temptation of returning to that old age and instead remain steadfastly in the light of Christ who has come. What is it for you? The only hope for our world is that the spirit of Advent will turn into action through those of us who carry the spirit of this strange man, John the Baptist, and of his Savior, Jesus. Consumer confidence is growing right now. Thanksgiving weekend this year set records for spending. When we accumulate more stuff, and gorge ourselves and ensure that our church services don't interfere with our parties, we continue to ignore John the Baptist and the one to whom he points. But when we take our stand in the wilderness and with single-mindedness cry out, as it were, for all to look to the Son of God who takes away the sin of the world, then Advent once again has meaning. Stay awake. Watch. God is liberating this world from wickedness and darkness through the repentance and faith and obedience and love of His people. Our patch in this frontier may indeed be a small one, but may we stand on it faithfully all the way to the end. Amen.